This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Joel, we recently had a brief conversation about COVID and its and its impacts on students and schools. And at that point, we thought we should devote an entire episode to this topic. Yeah, meet the listeners where they are. Absolutely. It's certainly something that is, that is uh, I think, relevant across the planet right now as, as everywhere is uh, struggling um, with coming to terms with this. So today we have Dr. Kimberly Schonert-Reichel with us, and I'll just do a, a, a brief, a brief uh, in, intro and, and then talk about why I love Kim so much and why she's such a brilliant human being. Dr. Kimberly Schonert-Reichel is the Novo Foundation Endowed Chair in Social and Emotional Learning and Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Illinois, Chicago. From 1991 to 2020, she was professor in the Department of Educational Counseling, Psychology, and Special Education in the Faculty of Ed at the University of British Columbia. In July 2020, Kim completed a five-year appointment as the director of the Human Early Learning Partnership, which may have been Kim where we first met. I'm not sure. Um, an interdisciplinary research institute focused on child development in the School of Population and Public Health and in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. Jal Kim was a uh, an early driving force behind the curriculum shifts in British Columbia and was really a, a primary thinker around around student competencies. Uh, she has advised the OECD. She's worked with the Dalai Lama. I'm sure we have many stories that we'd be able to share. You worked with the Dalai Lama? <laughs> yes. Um, yes. You know, he really loves um, research and science, and he is really particularly. Um, fascinated and, and, and dedicated to improving education, especially educating the hearts of children. So he really, that's been something I, I feel like every time I see him, he's kind of pointing his finger and saying, get to work right now, <laughs> make change the world, make education better for all of our children. So Kim, welcome. Uh, you've, you've joined us. Excellent. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Really just so uh, honored to be here with with both of you and to be able to talk about this very critical topic that is so central right now in the minds of everyone. It's the mental health and well-being of our children and our educators. So Kim, how are you doing during these COVID times? How are you, how are you coping? <laughs> well, you know, that's such a, thank you. No one really asked me that that much, but I feel I'm doing okay. I mean, I, I am entering, you know, as we enter the third year of the pandemic, I definitely have some COVID pandemic fatigue, you know, um, spending my days really from early in the morning to late, you know, in the day on Zoom meetings or Teams, one of those. Um, what's happened is I actually jam-packed my meet, my days more because you don't have to get up and drive the car or go to a, across the street to another meeting. You just sit in one place. And so I've, I've done the, the thing that I wouldn't recommend anyone else to do is uh, have, COVID, have uh, meetings back to back to back to back starting early in the morning. So I think that that definitely takes its uh, you know, takes its toll um, of being able to de-zoom at the middle of uh, the end of the day. And the one thing I, I do have to say, it's also allowed me to be participate in things that I I wouldn't usually have to. Um, this morning, I have to say, I was part of a, I was a speaker in Israel. They're launching a new challenge called the Social and Emotional Learning Challenge, 
uh, to integrate SE social and emotional learning into science and English curriculum. And so I was able to join, you know, just, you know, in the morning, start the day by being in Israel and then go to another meeting in British Columbia and then another meeting, you know, so I, I, I have to say in terms of my own well-being that that also fulfills me being able to be um, at that global level um, without having to get on a plane. <laughs> and Kim, you've recently moved from Vancouver to Chicago. Yes. Both, I believe, during COVID times. Um, was, how, how does it feel different? I miss Vancouver. Can I just say I was there for 30 years. It's really my home. I, I miss the mountains, seeing mountains every day and um, all of my friends um, with who I was already missing there because I didn't get really see them when, you know, um, but Chicago is a, an amazing city. If everyone's, if anyone's been in Chicago, um, it's a beautiful, vibrant city, very friendly people. Not that Canadians aren't friendly, but in Chicago, there's a certain kind of friendliness and um, hospitality. And I don't know if anybody has really um, been here for the food. There's very good food in Chicago. So I'm, I'm happy to be back to uh, enjoy some of that for sure. And be with family. I have to say, I grew up in Chicago. So, um, and my mom is here as well. So she's, uh, she's really happy. All right. So, you know, we invited you on to talk about the, the mental health of our uh, young people uh, under COVID this year. As you well know, it might be too soon to have really firm numbers, or maybe you have some really firm numbers, but certainly seems from all of the colleagues that I know in schools and reporting that I've read about what's happening in schools that it, you know, a fair number of teachers are saying this is the hardest year they've ever experienced in a way even harder than last year because there's just sort of more uncertainty and, you know, students are trying to continue the sort of regular experience in school, despite the fact that, you know, people are grieving for loved ones, recovering from social isolation, and so on and so forth. So maybe we could just sort of start with an open-ended question, which is kind of like, what what do you see out there? What do you think is kind of most uh, worrying? And what, if anything, might make you hopeful? Yeah, I love that you mentioned the hopeful, because I always like to take a strength-based lens to things, because I feel that we have heard a lot about the the mental health concerns. But I will start with that, because I do want to say, certainly the data are in, much data showing that there is a, even though prior to the pandemic, about one in five children and youth had have an identifiable mental health disorder, and that has gone up dramatically. Uh, I know um, reports of depression and anxiety have gone up about 50%. Suicides have gone up in our young people, all very concerning trends. A recent Ed Week report um, looking at school, a national survey of children, 6th to 12th grade, found that 44% of children, of students, uh, reported increased loneliness and social isolation. And so there's a number of studies now showing that students are having, are struggling with their mental health needs, you know, compounding with the isolation, not having the opportunities. Um, the other thing I've heard from colleagues, you know, I'm doing a lot, I'm doing research in schools uh, remotely, but I am talking to a lot of educators who are saying that they are noticing that students this year are less mature than a typical, uh, typical time period. So, you know, if you have taught seventh grade, you often expect a certain level of maturity they say now kids seem younger. And when you reflect on it, 
what's happened um, being a developmental psychologist is that children have missed out on important uh, peer socialization opportunities that we know are critical for their social and emotional development. So we're seeing uh, children who are now, um, even though they're chronologically at a certain age, that they're appearing younger because they missed basically the last, you know, two years of really important socialization of interacting with their peers face-to-face and things like that. I'm also hearing um, educators saying that kids, because of that immaturity that they're seeing, that these kids just seem younger, that there's also less regulation. They're seeing physical fights in schools where they never had physical fights before among kids. I've heard a lot of that as well. And I, you know, I think that's just the sort of manifestation of a lot of things that are going on underneath the surface, but yes. Exactly. So these physical fights and and um, we did do a survey in British Columbia. I, I lead this um, measure on student well-being called the middle years development instrument that we now give across British Columbia at a population level. And the two things that struck out in our survey from last year is that the decreases in well-being were particularly heightened in the middle school years and early adolescence. So seventh and eighth graders, that those were the kids, whereas the fourth graders, the younger kids, we didn't see from pre-pandemic to pandemic real drops in their well-being, those middle school students, and if you think about it, that developmental period is a time of a stress pileup. Multiple changes occur in a short period of time, and that you compound that with this pandemic, we saw real decreases in their well-being. And the other thing, um, it's interesting because I also study self-regulation or self-control, how uh, you manage your stress, this prefrontal cortex, part of our brain that's really responsible for working memory, cognitive control, that we actually saw decreases in self-regulation um, across that developmental period. So just so you know, development, typically you get better at things as you get older, like self-regulation is something. And we actually saw a declines in this ability to self-regulate. And so um, it's not surprising then from these data that then you see more fighting. Kids are, you're just, I just want to say they're at their tether. Like you have no more time to to actually take a breath and and, um, do something. So the hopes, and I'll say um, one thing is, so I'm doing a couple of research studies right now on, on well-being um, evaluations of programs for children that are about bolstering their mental health and their resilience. One's called Mind Up, which is a program that's social and emotional learning program. The other one is called We Wellbeing. And I thought we'd never be able to recruit classrooms to participate. The teachers would say, I can't take anything on. You know, I've seen exactly what you said in terms of teachers are more stressed this year. They say this is a harder year than last year. The number of teachers who are lining up to participate in our studies is phenomenal. I really, I'm just blown away. Um, But I think it's because they want to do something. They want to help their their students um, be better. So that's, I have a hope. I know people want want solutions and they really see the educators want the best for their students. Kim, you mentioned the MDI, the Middle Years Developmental Index. How about how about the EDI, did you, the early years? Did did you see similar things in that, or or any 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 differences in 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 the data during COVID? We're just now the Early Development Instrument, which is a measure of children's social emotional competence and cognitive development as they enter kindergarten. We are just now analyzing those data because they do it in three-year waves. So they're not now this wave eight. It's a it's a measure at the population level. BC is unique in in the world, I have to say, in capturing well-being, uh, measuring well-being at the population level of children <laughs> across time, and being and, and the government pays for it, which is amazing. Um, 
Um, but we're just, so we don't have any uh, data yet. My, my feeling is, you know, and it gets to another point and, and we could sort of talk about this more is, is the adults, what we know from the research and I'll, I'll say this till the cows come home or whatever, <laughs> is that if you want to care for the children, we have to care for the adults around them. And that is first and foremost, why we need to pay our attention to supporting our educators. I've seen two recent surveys, um, one from Rand, one from a survey we did in British Columbia of teachers during COVID is we are, we are coming up upon, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about this, a huge teacher shortage. I believe in our one study, 40% of the teachers currently teaching said they are thinking about leaving the profession earlier than they had expected. On that point, I mean, Rod and I are big believers in kind of a symmetry or parallelism kind of view that the way that you treat the adults uh, is critical for how they're going to treat the kids and, um, you know, good organizations, all of that runs consistently in a good direction. I was looking through some of your research today, and I noticed that you'd been part of a study that found correlations between teacher burnout and students' cortisol levels. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's one. And we're just actually, I'm just working on a paper right now that's a replication of that. So we know emotions are contagious. So I'll just say that we know that, you know, emotions are contagious um, and we know stress is contagious. It's stress. If you're in a situation where you're around a lot of stressed individuals, even though if you're not stressed, you will kind of even physiologically experience it. So we wanted to, uh, uh, Dr. Ava Oberly, my um, colleague, we want to test this in the classroom. So we went to fourth to seventh grade classrooms. We did particularly pick that developmental stage because it is a time of, as I said, transition and those early and pre and early adolescence. And so we went and we had their teachers uh, complete a measure of their own stress and burnout. And for the students, to, in order to get at their stress physiology, we uh, decided to look at their cortisol levels. Uh, cortisol, just for anyone who isn't familiar, cortisol is a stress hormone. Um, we all have it, and it follows a, a diurnal pattern of a healthy pattern for cortisol as it peaks about a half an hour after awakening and then decreases the rest of the day. Dysregulated uh, stress and in, in index by cortisol is either um, something called like uh, hypercortisolism, where you actually have it high all the day. You're kind of like always like on that versus if you're really stressed, the system kind of reacts by decreasing it. So you kind of have blunted or sort of a hypocortisolism really low. So we wanted to see uh, for kids. So just so, so just so you can imagine, we went to 17 classrooms um, and asked kids to give us their saliva. We gave them a whole PowerPoint about why we're collecting their saliva and this sort of that. And they loved it. They love to spit for us. And in fact, they even called the research <laughs> spit lady, always the spit lady here. Um, but they really, truly loved it. They, it, I just wanted to say it was so fun. I know this is a bit of an aside, but how much the students love learning about the science and what we were doing, like we really made that part of our research. So they were super excited. But what was fascinating is what we found. Those classrooms in which teachers had the, reported the highest levels of, of burnout had students with the highest levels of cortisol indicative of heightened stress. What we don't know was a correlational study. We don't know which direction it was, where teachers more stressed and burnout and the kids were catching it, or kids coming in with more stress. And because of teachers' big empathic hearts, they were collecting, you know, they were experiencing that. But it really underlies, you know, what you were saying is the idea that if you are going to work within the context of schools, you have to work with the adults and students together. Like it's a context. It isn't just like 
trying to keep on giving teachers, give this to students, give this to students. Um, teachers really matter. We were a bit nervous when we released that study because we felt that teachers might feel that we're somehow blaming them, but it was the opposite that happened. Uh, teachers, um, their responses were finally someone is is understanding us. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. One, I remember at one point, one of my sons was in preschool and he had a teacher who I can only describe as frazzled. And it was not a great year. And she had a co-teacher who was younger than she was. And she was always sort of on edge. Like it was like a bad marriage, like not sure what to say because you never know what would happen. And then a few years later, my second son landed in the same classroom and I was like, oh gosh, here we go. And it was great. And I thought, oh, it's interesting. Like, I don't know what was going on in this woman's life and so on and so forth. But, you know, uh, stress can be sort of highly situational. And, you know, the same person who presents as very stressed one year may not be stressed a year or two later as, you know, life events change. I think, you know, that my first thought was that they, the school got a new administrator. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel that because it's the school leader who sets the tone. And if you have a school leader who is supportive of teachers' well-being, they, you know, so just like the teacher sets the, the, the tone of the classroom in creating that safe and supportive, caring, nurturing, participatory um, classroom. So, anyways, and, and then transfers it onto students, what that happens, I, I feel like the school leader. So you could have a school leader who comes in and suddenly sees and hears the t educators and supports them. Anyway, so that's my first <laughs> response, or it might be a many other reasons too. Yeah. And to your point about retention, you know, as you know, I'm sure there's a lot of research from Susan Moore Johnson and Matt Kraft and others showing that one of the biggest predictors of whether teachers stay is really the the climate in the school, whether they feel supported, whether they feel like there's collective efficacy and they're working together to accomplish a goal and have some reasonable ability to do that. So I definitely think there's a sort of deep kind of social piece about the sort of nature of the social environment that really, because we sometimes we think of retention, you know, as like individuals in this pipeline, what can we do? And a lot of the things seem to sh show, maybe not that surprisingly, that it's really the social context that matters a lot. It is. And it goes back to Tony, you know, Bright's work on relational trust in schools and the importance of that, of having those. And, and, I'll, and I'll mention one other thing, and this is something I also have been working on for last while. A while is teacher preparation and how much we integrate within teacher preparation, social and emotional learning. So they learn more of how to uh, not sort of how they deal with behavior problems. Often they have a classroom management class, but really how do you create that supportive environment that is very proactive um, as well as opportunities for them to promote their own well-being and create those, you know, have those contexts in school. So um, at university, again, I'm going to call out British Columbia, <laughs> University of British Columbia about 12 years ago, a colleague Shelly Emel and I started the first ever SEL in teacher preparation cohort, um, where a group of teacher candidates go through for a year. Um, it's a post-baccalaureate 12-month program and uh, integrate SEL into all of their uh, classroom and even do that work in when they do their uh, teaching. 
I think in some ways, if we start integrating this into teacher preparation, how to um, not only cultivate the well-being and social emotional competencies of the students and create those caring and those supportive environments that cultivate those, but at the same time, learning how to to promote your own social emotional competence and well-being um, will actually help retain, and my hypothesis (laughs) is that we'll have more teachers staying, you know, um, and when you ask new teachers, what are the things that stress them out the most? It's, it's often the class. Well, I think there's a couple of things, classroom management and, um, uh, stress from their colleagues. <laughs> yeah. So Kim, let, let's take that and, and, and put it back into the COVID context of young people, uh, as, as you've identified from some of the MDI data that, that are increasingly feeling disconnected and, and stressed, and teachers who are, we, we see the data are increasingly reporting uh, high stress levels and, uh, and so on. And so clearly that can't be a, a good mix in a classroom. You know, it, it's such a critical aspect. And I think that we need to find ways to support the educators. I mean, that's where I really want to go. And that's where I've seen lots of attention. Teachers are just really looking for their um, strategies for themselves, but for their students as well. There's a number of programs for teachers that are coming out now that really focus on well-being. There's a program called the Care for Teachers, Cultivating Awareness and Resilience in Education that has shown real um, benefits and is now done online. I mean, this is the other thing. Again, another positive aspect, you know, if you want to look for silver linings, is the um, number of programs that before you had to pay a lot of money for traveled to a certain place to get trained in, they now are being offered online at cheaper prices or for free. And are you seeing teachers taking advantage of, the, of those things? Because it can feel a bit like a like when you're in a sort of a downward spiral and, and, and you're already feeling stressed and you're feeling overloaded. And then it's, do I now want to register for something else? And I'm not, not, not asking you for advice, but, but uh, from your perspective, what are the kinds of things that can help to turn that spiral around into a more positive direction? Well, I do see increases in teachers. I mean, I think number one, the number of people who are recognizing that teachers are stressed, that they should be valued. I've seen more attention to that than I've ever seen before. I think often when you talk about teacher well-being, uh, I remember several years ago at a district unnamed in British Columbia where teachers wanted to use some kind of funding for massages or something. They're like, why should we care for the teachers? We shouldn't do that. You know, whereas now I think they're like, let's, those teachers are stressed. We need to take care of them. Not that massages are the only, only uh, uh, one, but I feel that I mean, I guess for me, there's two things. One is I think on the one hand, yes, there's an increase in these programs. Teachers could do it. There's research on them. Um, But then it's just another Band-Aid to a larger systemic issue that is really about why, you know, in the one study that we did, we found, you know, that teachers said their workloads have increased during COVID, you know? And so why is that? Like, so, so I feel like on the one hand, we want teachers to help their own well-being and you should do this program and support it when in fact, No, you should think about what are the sort of systemic issues that are leading to that and address those. So, and then what I've seen, and I'll just give a really good example of principals at schools who are making intent. Now, someone has to care for the principals. I'll make a whole other statement about that. But um, where they're saying, okay, teachers are going to join this program. It's going to be during school time. We'll find, we'll do it in a way so the teachers don't have to do it on their extra time. So, really honoring that and even little things. Like having a well-being, I, I know this is just such a small thing, but I remember teachers appreciated where a principal at a school 
told teachers that during your planning time, of course, you can go for a walk with a colleague and do your planning time there. Of course, you could go like just allow them those spaces to be able to get out in nature to go do something rather than keep to the rigidity of that. And so a, a leader who sees that to say, how do we support that? Yeah, anyway, and I think there's the other thing we haven't talked about is parents and where they fit in all of this because they've taken on a whole new role um, and how we how we support them as well and those relationships between the schools and the parents. Before we get to the parents, I'm interested that you've spent time and in BC and also in Chicago. Do you notice anything, you know, obviously like schools vary school to school and there are other types of contextual differences within uh, given places, but does anything sort of strike you coming from originally from the, I think the U.S. to Canada and now from Canada back to the U.S.? You know, so and the one thing, kids are kids, <laughs> teachers are teachers. You know, so I feel like, you know, there's those same things. But I, I do have to say, in a, you know, and, and Rod, you'll, you know, Rod, you played such a central role in this. BC has a very unique education system. Now, first of all, just be Canada in general is a different kind, has a different safety net um, for children and families. Not that we're without problems, but it's just a different way. Uh, my kids both went to schools in Vancouver, Canada. There are no charter schools, just so you know. Uh, your neighborhood schools you go to, and and in my experience was, and my my both my boys did French immersion, so you get to choose French or English from the time kids start kindergarten. It's not a special program; it's you just get to choose. I feel that there's that there's more of an I don't know. I want to say now equity focus. Like I feel like whatever school you go to, you you pretty much get the same supports versus the tax base. I don't know how it all works here with schools in the U.S. It's a different kind of funding model. I also feel that in in BC, again, I'll speak to that. Um, there's a lot of teacher autonomy. Teachers, uh, when we developed this new curriculum that Rod was part of, the B- redesigned curriculum, teachers were at the core of it. They were actually helping develop it. They were part of it. Um, we worked very closely with the BC Teachers Federation, our union. I think what I see that's unique actually is the relationships. You know, when you talk about relationships, that the relationships across the school system with the government, with the even the university are, you know, it's a small place. So that's when I think I see. The thing I see here are similar issues though about teacher well-being, about student well-being. And I think for me, and I, I guess I live in Hyde Park. We have the, the lab, Dewey's, John Dewey's lab school just a few blocks away from me. You know, so there are definitely privilege and not so privileged, you know, yeah. So I think that disparity, that 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 the the sort of gap between that, I see that much more heightened here than I did when I was in British Columbia. Can I turn that one to you too, Rod? You've been you've spent some time in the States and we've been part of this partnership across uh national lines for a few years now. What sorts of similarities or differences do you observe? It's a great question. I would I would say equity is is one. Uh, although, like Kim, I'd want to say this is not to suggest we are an equitable jurisdiction in British Columbia. Far from it. However, that has been rec- that issue of, of equity has been recognized for a long time. And so, for example, there's no local tax base does not go to your local school. It all goes into the provincial coffers and it gets redistributed based on the needs uh, through a, a whole variety of factors. And I don't want to get too far into nerdville on how the funding formula works, but, but for example, if you're a student in West Vancouver, living in West Vancouver, one of probably our most affluent 
school district in the province, uh, probably our most affluent school district in the country, your allocation per pupil is is far lower than if you're in a very remote northern school district, perhaps like the Stikine or like Niska. There could be a difference of about three times. So so it might be around eight or nine thousand dollars per pupil if you're in West Van. And it could be, um, you know, $24,000 or so if you're up in the Stikine to compensate for the fact it costs more to, uh, to educate kids because we want a, as as common an experience for kids, regardless of where they are, as as possible. There, There's not a lot of mechanisms for schools to raise money. You, schools can't really raise money to hire extra teachers because... That's not how we do do things here. Those attempts have been made. Uh, they're not perfect. There's lots to do uh, on that. If you're an Indigenous student or a student of colour, you would say things are far from equitable and you'd be right. But I think we're on the right path and we're, and we're starting to ask the right questions. So I think that's a fundamental foundational difference than it's about all of our kids as opposed to just my my child. It We have a system that's sort of trying to get to all... To, to all kids. And I would say we have phenomenal teacher ed programs. There's, as, as Kim has said, there's lots of work to do there too. Um, but our, I think our teachers are really well prepared here and we have great teachers. It's true. I do feel that if you actually look at the number of teachers who have master's degrees, and I think there's, um, and I just have to say the costs of higher education. Um, let me just <laughs> tell you. So at UBC, University of British Columbia, uh, one of the top I think our faculty of education was rated six in North America, something like that. You know, undergraduate education is about $5,000 a year to go. So the idea of even higher education, our educators, um, the access, the equity for them to be able to go for higher, you know, to get the the credentialing and all that is is much easier. And, and, And teachers get paid more. And this is my understanding. I, I don't know. I looked at the rod. I don't know if this should get paid more. And and there's a bit higher status in terms of how teaching is is viewed. Yeah, Joel, what what's your take on on this question? You, you know, you and Sarah did a ton of research across uh, across America, looking at schools, and you worked with a number of school districts in Canada. What's what's your take? My favorite story about this is uh, going to Ontario actually on a you know, an OECD trip at one point. And, you know, I I don't know, we were trying to produce some sort of volume and there was also a video crew along. And so the video crew in particular was like trying to tell some very particular story about what was happening at this school and, you know, with staging kids and placing them here and there to make it, you know, and I'm, that's just not my nature. I want to know like what is actually going on. So I pulled this guy aside, a math teacher. And I said, you know, people are telling me that, the profession is very different here and that it's it's more difficult to become a teacher. And, you know, is that true? Like, what's your experience on the ground? And he said, it's true. Like, I had friends in college who, like, wanted to become teachers and hadn't done well enough in college and weren't going to become teachers. I had to be a sub for a while and gradually sort of work my way into the system. And he said, you know, but everybody knows there's a loophole. And I said, what's that? He said, oh, you could just go across the border. Anyone can get credentialed over there. And I was like, oh, that's how we look to our uh, our Canadian colleagues. So I, I do think there's a difference there. That's that's one. On the point about do we take care of one another and do we see our responsibility as sort of, I mean, every parent is feels deeply responsible to their own child, but do we also see a responsibility to 
kind of all of the children and to the nation as a whole. And I think the combination of, you know, American individualism and racial strife um, and physical segregation, the sort of mixture of all of those things promotes a very strong sort of what's good for my kid and not what's good for the whole kind of situation. And there are, you know, the, on your question about the funding, funding, as you know, is done by property taxes locally. And then, you know, advocates bring it to court and say, this isn't fair. The state, you know, guarantees, depends on the state, but the state guarantees the standard is something like, you know, does every student in this state get like a suitable education or something like that? And then they try to use that to argue for more equal funding. And sometimes those suits win, but then it goes to the legislature and the legislature is in part elected by people in the suburbs who don't want the money redistributed. And so it's not that there aren't some movements to do those sorts of things. It's just that it always ends up in very conflictual politics. Yeah, ch- ch- challenging times, and and some of the OECD data that that over the last few years that's that's indicated that Canada, British Columbia in particular, is you know one of the most equitable jurisdictions in the world. I think speaks more about others than it does about us, because uh, we're you know if you ask, and as as I do often in speaking with groups uh, here in BC, say, does it feel like we're equitable here? And people go, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, we, we have we have so much work to do, but like I say, I think some of the some of the mechanisms are the sort of right mechanisms. And as Marshall Gantz uh, commented on this, we are the home of Tommy Douglas. So, you know, we have sort of this this, this uh, predisposition to um, safety nets that um, for for all of our folks. I was just going to add something. Uh, yeah, I'm in the field of social and emotional learning. And when I would go and present to educators in British Columbia about the importance of social responsibility, um, back in 2001, the performance standards in BC, uh, which weren't mandated, but were accepted was um, one was social responsibility, which included solving problems in peaceful ways, practicing democratic rights and responsibilities, um, being able to um, contribute to classroom and school community and valuing diversity and defending human rights. And those came out in 2001. And I think every single school district across British Columbia embraced them. And when I went to talk to schools about social responsibility and cultivation of social emotional competencies, I never once, I have to say, never once had anyone ask me if it leads to higher academic achievement. So this idea of integrating the promotion of students' um, well-being and social responsibility to become, you know, citizens of tomorrow, was just seen that's an end goal instead of whether they'll lead to higher academics. And that's, whereas I think in the States, so much has been surrounded about, about school achievement and standardized testing and all of that. So anyway, so that was another important <laughs> difference I wanted to mention. Working with the BC educators has been really eye-opening for me because in the US there's, you know, academic achievement and then there's social emotional learning. And, you know, I probably everybody who works in social emotional learning thinks that, you know, these things should be fused. And by creating the right kind of culture in a classroom, you know, it's not a set aside you do once a week. It's like part of how you live your practice every day. But I don't know, in America, like I would talk to superintendents, they're like, okay, well, how can we measure that? And is that going up? And is it going up at the same rate? And then I went to work with the Canadians and they were like, yeah, like our job is to support 
children and like that's part of their development so we should do it and i don't know it it, it just it was just striking yeah and i i don't want to belabor this point but but um you know where we currently are in bc with 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 our curriculum i won't call it new anymore cuz it just it just is that is that is competency focused competency based those competencies are not assessed uh, in that they don't appear in a report card or did you graduate no i i didn't do well enough in cooperation you know and they got a c minus or something um we ask instead we ask students to self report and and so and so students self assess in in those areas and i think that's that's i think that's quite brilliant uh wasn't my idea i think i think it's 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 quite brilliant it's it's important but not everything that's important needs to needs to end up in a mark on a report card but you see evidence of it throughout all all those academic areas you see you, you can see evidence of 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 kids that are have those have those um, personal and social competencies kim you use the term about about kids sort of getting ready for the future world and 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 what's ahead of them and it seems to me being an old guy that when i was in school i kind of knew that the world ahead of me was looked pretty much like the world i was in that uh, at that point it was pretty predictable. You could kind of guess what was, figure out what was coming. And we know, and there's been lots of literature about how the pace of that has changed and we're preparing kids for jobs that don't, don't yet exist and, and so on. But we're also in this space now where young people are, are bombarded by climate catastrophes, by increasingly mobile populations that are moving around the world as uh, refugees from, from climate issues or political issues or economic issues and uh, and and we have the pandemic, of course. It it seems I, I wonder if and and your perspective on kids and the uncertainty of the future right now. So it's not just a, a, an educator problem of how do we prepare kids for that, but how are kids seeing the future? Are they seeing it as optimistically as we did, or 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 or, or what? Like, do you have any any insight into that? Well, you know, it's such a great question because I'd say on the one hand, of course, I see increased anxiety around those, these certain world problems. And because everything is, you know, your phone, you know, in the news updates and everything, everything that's happening is right there at you. So that increased uh, stress, I certainly would see among our young people. However, I also want to say, I just have seen incredible initiatives by young people. I think we continue, my own sense, I've worked with so many youth and even you know children for so long they we always underestimate them and their capacities to do something and so i really believe that if we give them the tools if we give them the forum if we give them the ability to to have a sense of agency if we really build that sense of agency and purpose in ways that are creating a better world, they will go for it. But we have to integrate it within education. We have to, this is why I'll be a broken record about this social and emotional learning. You know, the idea, uh, this one study that we're doing right now on we, this well-being program where it's integrating social and emotional learning with service learning. So every activity children are engaged in conversations of how can we work together to create a better community classroom world and they together come their own agency so teacher doesn't give them like do this activity go out and collect money or whatever the children themselves come together and they're so creative and so i think that idea of because of social and emotional learning because we can integrate things into the classrooms and schools environments to give them a forum. But I think we have to do it in an intentional way and not just think that the, the experiences 
are going to only be the kids who, you know, usually who raise their hand or let's go volunteer to do this, giving them all an opportunity um, to do that. Anyway, so I, I'm really hopeful. Um, and I think that they are amazing, though it does make me think, you know, that we know from this whole research about making a difference, in the, you know, volunteering improves not only your well-being and health. So, you know, I think that one thing that we've seen is that um, during the pandemic, we asked kids in a survey and actually did some interviews as well as what they did. But do you know how many children and youth have actually come together to do something positive for the world in the pandemic? Like that was something... Anyway, so I just I just have to say I have hope and I think, but we need to be more intentional in how we support them in doing that. So this is a hard question, not necessarily for you, but for the sort of field as a whole. I've noticed that recently social emotional learning has gotten some criticism from folks on the sort of equity left part of the spectrum uh, along the lines of, you know, you're you're teaching children to sort of fit the existing social order and thus like, you know, you mentioned before regulation, like the point of self-regulation, like rather than teaching kids how to sit still, why don't you make classrooms more interesting or culturally responsive? And then they wouldn't have as many, you know, problems with uh, what was happening. So I, I just, I know I'm sure you've read or heard some version of that critique and I just sort of wonder uh, what you make of it. Yes, I, I've spent lots of time thinking about how to respond to that. Um, when I think about social and emotional learning, you know, we often think of a program that, te- you know, the teachers teach one day a week for 50 minutes. And and, and I agree there has been an increase in this whole idea of self-regulation and trying to get kids to, I feel like, um, shut up and listen to the teacher. So yes, I think there are, I think there are certainly some approaches that see SEL as that program that comes and does that. But I really see social emotional learning. Uh, the foundation is creating the positive, uh, participatory, caring, supportive classroom context that that's that only learning occurs when you feel heard, seen, you are, you have a voice, you have a caring and supportive relationship with your, with the teacher, when you feel respected and uh, with your peer group and all of that. So I think that that's the foundation to social and emotional learning. And then within social emotional learning, of course, are helping students learn certain, certain competencies. I will say, you know, learning how to manage a conflict, how, how, what's a good way to, to solve a problem peacefully. And then also I think the te- the educators as well, that that has to be a piece of it. So I think you're right that some people want to um, simplify SEL as being just this one thing to control kids. And, and I think the other thing that I thought is, is the idea that people are saying you should, school shouldn't be doing this. This is the role of parents. And, um, and I just hark back to, I don't know if you're fami- both familiar with Phil Jackson's book, uh, Life in Classrooms, and where he coined the phrase, the hidden curriculum, where we are already teaching all of these things, <laughs> how, to, how to manage your stress, the kids watch it, how to solve conflicts, who, who's, who's valued, who's not valued. I always love the example where I say, walk into any high school and you will see an honor roll on one side and a trophy case on the other. What does that say about what we value and, and who, who, who matters and who does not matter? Kim, you mentioned uh, casually at the top of the show that um, you had spent time with the Dalai Lama. And that's not something that everyone gets to do. That's kind of a, that's kind of a, kind of a cool thing. I had the privilege of uh, probably three minutes with the Dalai Lama when he was in Vancouver. And uh, that was 
I'm not sure I'd say life altering, but almost. It was pretty, pretty amazing experience. You've spent way more time than that with the Dalai Lama. And I know he has lots of opinions about education and lots of opinions about what we could and should be doing for our young people. Any of those things that you want to comment on or share? Basically, he always says there are 7 billion people in the world. We adults in the last while have messed up things. The only way to support our future of the world is to educate the hearts of children. But I love the way he talks about it. He talks about cultivating their compassionate nature, not teaching them compassion. He really believes in science now supports it. This idea that children, even as young as, you know, when they're born can have a sense of empathy. They can have, they have that, that idea of that root empathy. So he really feels we need to cultivate it and that we can do it in schools and, and he also, just, you know, he really believes in the science. I think that the, you know, one of the reasons I've been invited to speak with him is because I do the research in schools, but also the practice. So really that blend of showing the science of some of his ideas and he really supports the science. And this is really, I think he, he really truly believes that he wants one of his uh, legacies to be uh, making a difference for the, for the children in the world. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, with uh, with Dr. Richie Davidson, he 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 uh, put the, the brain scan cap on while he was meditating and, and looked at alterations in his brain patterns and so on. Like he, he's a, a bit of a science nerd. He said he always says, like, I'm like half Buddhist and half scientist. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Kim, we have come to the part of the show we lovingly call the lightning round. We have a few quick questions for you for some short answers. And, uh, um, and of course, we have not told you what the questions are in advance. So it'll just be shooting from the hip, which is always, always fun. Jal, if it's okay with you, I'll begin. Go for it. Okay. Uh, Kim, uh, what's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? Uh, the idea of keeping kids in grades grade five, grade six, grade seven, grade eight, all assembly line. Bless you. Wow. Fellow <laughs> traveler. I know it's the lightning round, but, uh, but why? You know, as a developmental psychologist, number one, I, I think there's, um, the kids are all different. There's variability. So that you go from fifth grade to sixth grade. The other thing is I love the idea of, uh, what we've lost in our society. And in fact, some researchers have said that what, one of the reasons you see increases in youth problem behaviors is because we've pulled away from this idea of having older students with younger students and the idea of putting these, this is kind of what the system was like. They, um, have a sense of purpose and that connection. And, um, I didn't mention, I, I I'll just talk about one research study where we showed that adolescents who volunteered with younger children after school decreased their risk for heart disease. We collected their blood and found decreases in cholesterol and IL-6 just by working with younger children. A school that I was principal at that shall remain nameless uh, was sort of uh, an elementary school was organized in a kind of a big circle. And, and typically it went from kindergarten all the way around to grade seven on the far side of the school. And then there was the library and the office and stuff, a nice big buffer zone in between. And we were having lots of conversations ab- about the, the exactly this and over a weekend, we shifted all the classrooms and we mixed the deck. So the grade seven was next to kindergarten so the, and, and so on around the school. 
and lots of people, mostly parents, lost their minds saying, well, the big kids are going to come and they're going to stomp on the little kids and they're going to push and shove. And what did we see within the first couple of days is it's the grade sevens are helping the kindergarten kids put their boots on and, and they're taking care of them and the pushing and shoving and lines disappeared. Hey, look out for the little kids, right? And and it just changed the tone. It was just a, this beautiful, you know, big brothers and big sisters looking after the little brothers and little sisters. And, and uh, I just so agree with you, Kim. I can beat that. I, I have three, uh, 11, eight, and just turned two. And when the eight and the 11 year old are fighting, I just take the two year old and like physically pick him up and put him between the two of them. And all of a sudden, like the two year old smiles and the 11, the eight year old, all of a sudden their caring selves, which you thought had disappeared forever, just, uh, just returned. So I, I have, have also found that strategy. It's so true. And I, I won't go into one of the other programs in Canada that I've done research on is called the Roots of Empathy. I was just going to say Roots of Empathy, Kim. Yeah, it's perfect. The classroom. So yes, showing the same kinds of effects. <laughs> do, you, do you want to just, I, I know we're, we're well off the lightning round, but but in, in a minute, what is the Roots, what is roots of Empathy? Our American listeners may not know anything oh, about yeah. that. So Roots of Empathy is a program that began in 1996 in Toronto, Canada by Mary Gordon. And the essence of the program is bringing an infant, uh, usually three to four months old at the beginning of the school year, once a month into a classroom to um, to teach empathy. So the baby is the, the infant is the teacher. The children engage in conversations about how the infant feels and how they feel. Um, and really is a lovely, amazing program uh, and, and the research is astounding, showing over and over again, decreases in aggression, bullying, and increases in empathy and pro-sociality. When he was one, I also brought him to difficult meetings, um, mostly over Zoom, but if I thought things would get heated, I just held him up and then... Uh, the, uh, okay, uh, lightning round question two. I used to think blank, and now I think, why? Um, oh, that's a good one. Okay. I used to think that teachers need to find ways to promote their own well-being, that they are the ones who finding strategies to promote their well-being. And I now believe that really it's the larger system that we have to address to in order to um, promote uh, teacher well-being. Kim, what's one thing that you wish policymakers understood that they do not? that actually to, to move forward, we have to th take the long game instead of the short game. So the idea is that yes, right now by giving money to this might make short sense during your time as a politician, <laughs> but really investing in something you have to, you might not reap the benefits during your time in order to help the larger society. So, yeah. <laughs> Not all good things happen in four-year electoral electoral right. cycles. And, or, and I'll just give an example. I and I'll talk about the uh, maternity leave in Canada, that is one year. That legislation to have a one-year maternity leave was based on policymakers listening to neuroscientists about the importance of the developing brain and attachment during the first year of life. And so they went for the long game, so the short one. In general, I think that our quick fix mentality is the root of so many problems that we're just sort of in a hamster wheel ask kind of position you know that the average superintendent introduces 12 initiatives every three years and the average tenure of a superintendent is three years like no wonder uh, it's hard to make things get better because who could how could things possibly get better at that rate of turbulence and this is the final question unless rod has a bonus question which is always possible Another field or domain worth education emulating, 
where should we look for inspiration? Oh, that's a great one. Um, I mean, my first initial response is, is the biological sciences. Um, and I'll tell you why um, some of the recent, certainly recent innovations in neuroscience, and I think education takes them on in, in sometimes a too simplistic way, but the research from the biological sciences of looking at epigenetic change, of looking at how these, how our genes are mapped, like basically DNA can be turned on or turned off and how environmental context really can make a difference. So the research looking at these, how social experiences get under the skin and can actually have both short-term and long-term changes. I think that education could really say how, how you could use that science to think about how could we create those, those optimal nurturing environments that will be the best for helping you know, we have so much about the adverse childhood experiences and all of that. I do. So I do feel a lot of that could be a lot can be learned from the, from that aspect. I, I don't want to be reductionistic. I really, I don't want to say that, but the idea is that you can, these social experiences and educational experiences can have not just short-term, but long-term implications for future, for gen, generational changes. Very interesting. Bonus question. Chicago deep dish pizza or Vancouver sushi? <laughs> okay, so I'm totally biased because I'm not a sushi eater, uh, though we just had this debate in my household. So I can say because my son was visiting from Vancouver, um, my other son who's living in New York now is visiting. And so we, of course, had deep dish pizza. And, and there is only one, Gino's East is the only one to have. Forget that. Uno and Due and Giordano's. I haven't done that, but Gino's East because they have the best crust. But um, yeah, but Vancouver sushi, there definitely was a whole conversation about how the sushi in Chicago, not so good. <laughs> Fascinating. And a correct answer, by the way. Oh. Uh, that, 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 was the, that was the correct answer, uh, by the way. Yay. Um, Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, um, many thanks. And, and, and bringing to life a, a challenging topic. Um, in, in an optimistic way, uh, but for helping uh, us uh, get a better understanding of what's going on with our young people and our teachers in schools right now. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be with you both, Rod and Jal, to be a part of this important conversation and, and to be able to think about these big questions that we need to address right now. This is Rod Allen. And this is Jal Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, our guest was Dr. Kimberly Schonert-Reichel. Thanks, everyone, and a big thank you to Gino. Not Gino of the pizza, but Gino of our producer, who uh, makes us sound great. So thanks, Gino, for everything you're doing behind the scenes. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.